This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome back to another episode of the Diabetes Knowledge into Practice podcast, bringing you news, views and updates in diabetes care. This episode is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS, who have had no influence on the content or the choice of faculty. Today we're joined by Professor Stephen Bain to discuss highlights from the 2021 annual meeting of the European Association for the Study of Diabetes, which took place virtually from the 28th of September to the 1st of October. Professor Bain is Clinical Director of the Diabetes Research Unit at Swansea University and Medical Director for Research and Development for Swansea Bay University Health Board. You can find links to his disclosures and all the publications we discussed today in the episode notes. Firstly, um, we saw um, results of the TriMaster study um, presented, um, which is quite anticipated. So what do the findings of this add to our knowledge about treating type 2 diabetes? And are we likely to see a precision medicine approach used in the future? So the the TriMaster study was a a UK-based clinical trial, and it was comparing the use of three different classes of uh, glucose-lowering therapy in people with type 2 diabetes who had been treated with either one or two uh, oral therapies, typically metformin, plus or minus a a sulfonylurea. And the comparison drugs were a sodium glucose transporter uh, inhibitor, so that was canagliflozin in a dose of 100 milligrams, a thiazolidine dione, that was pyoglitazone in a dose of uh, 30 milligrams, and citagliptin in a dose of 100 milligrams. So the patients received those in random order and received each of the three therapies for about four months each. So you can see that the exposure to the individual drug was relatively short. And indeed, the the doses of the drugs that were used were not typical, I think, of clinical practice in that while citagliptin was used at its maximum dose, the other two uh, drugs, canagliflozin and pyoglitazone, weren't. So the aim was to see whether you would get better glucose lowering according to predefined variables. So particularly around weight and particularly around uh, EGFR, because clearly there are limitations, uh, especially for EGFR and the SGLT2 inhibitors. And the uh, results presented seem to confirm that they'd demonstrated that. The question as to whether this will really influence practice, I'm not quite so certain. As I've mentioned already, the doses of the drugs were not necessarily optimal and the exposure of the uh, drugs to people was only a very short period. Um, I think things have moved on since the trial was designed. So I think the SGLT2 inhibitors, for example, have got indications that go beyond glucose lowering. So heart failure, and especially now uh, progression or reduction in the progression of chronic kidney disease. I think that will influence prescribing. And the trial sort of came up with something that was slightly unusual in suggesting that people who were overweight should be receiving a TZD pyoglitazone, which I don't think in clinical practice is something that we would routinely think was a good idea. So uh, will it influence practice? I don't think it'll influence my practice, although as a specialist, I'm not seeing people at this stage in their diabetes uh, glucose lowering career. 
And to an extent, it's something we're already doing. Even the nice guidelines that are widely regarded as archaic do give individual uh, clinicians the choice of second line after metformin failure, which includes the three classes that we used in this study, plus sulfonylureas. And I suspect that most clinicians are not sort of picking these at complete random. I suspect that they are using uh, patient criteria to look at which drug they think would be best for the, the individual. I think there was a suggestion following the presentation that in clinical practice, we might actually be uh, going forwards putting people on three different therapies over the course of a year and then letting the individual patients choose. Um, I think given the current state of the NHS and the amount of work that has been loaded on primary care following the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, I doubt that that's something that would be um, enthusiastically received by primary care. I think they prefer to make a choice of a second or third line therapy. And if it works, then stick to it rather than changing things just for the sake of it. Great, thank you. Um, and secondly, um, one of the abstracts presented um, that you were a co-author of was a um, postdoc analysis of um, Sustain 6 and Pioneer 6, looking at whether metformin affected the, um, the outcomes. Could you um, give us just a brief summary of what the findings were and and what they mean sure so at the at the moment all new glucose lowering therapies have to go through cardiovascular outcome trials which are mandated for safety although some of them are also going through superiority trials to show benefit in terms of cardiovascular outcome reduction so this was an analysis of the sustained six and the Pioneer 6 studies that both use semaglutide, but semaglutide uh, delivered in different ways. So in Sustain 6, it was a once-weekly injectable semaglutide, whereas in Pioneer 6, it, it was a once-daily uh, oral semaglutide. Now, these studies have both hinted at, well, certainly demonstrated safety, but also hinted at superiority uh, for Pioneer 6 in a non-prespecified statistical analysis, that was significant. That wasn't the case with Pioneer 6, but it was a much, much shorter study with fewer events. And currently there's a, a large study called SOUL, which is investigating uh, oral semaglutide versus placebo in a high-risk group uh, with a view of demonstrating superiority if it exists. And that's ongoing at the moment. It's fully recruited. It's event uh, driven and is in uh, over 9,000 people. Now, some of the guidelines have taken the beneficial effects of uh, GLP 1 receptor agonists from the cardiovascular outcome studies and suggested that these might be the first line therapy before metformin in people with high risk or who have had a previous cardiovascular event. And specifically, that's the European Society of Cardiology guidelines. Now, people uh, sort of debate whether this is a good thing to do and argue that in the clinical trials, the vast majority of people who were included in the clinical trials, sort of 80%, that sort of number, are typically taking metformin. So you can't necessarily extrapolate that the cardiovascular benefit of GLP-1 receptor will be seen if it's not on that background. With the uh, Sustained 6 and Pioneer 6, and indeed many other cardiovascular outcome trials, has been a post hoc analysis to look at the impact of the treatment versus placebo in those patients who weren't taking metformin. Uh, 
Now, typically, patients are not taking metformin for a reason because it is the first line therapy in the majority of glucose lowering uh, guidelines. And so as a group, they tend to be older, they tend to be more likely to be taking insulin, and they tend to have a lower EGFR. So it's a slightly different group to that of the overall trial. But in this post-hoc analysis, using Sustain6 and Pioneer6 data, it did appear that the cardiovascular benefits of semaglutide were seen without a background of uh, metformin in this population. And that's pretty consistent with the other cardiovascular trials that have been examined in this post-hoc way. So specifically for the SGLT2 inhibitors and for the GLP-1 receptor agonists. So it was, if you like, it was confirming what we probably thought was going to be the case and going forwards, it means that if you've got patients who are unable to tolerate metformin, you can still anticipate the cardiovascular benefit from either um, subcutaneous or oral semaglutide in that setting. Moving on to the SURPASS programme, we saw some results presented from a few more trials at this conference. What are your thoughts on what these latest results might mean for potential future use of tazepatide if it gets approved? So tazapatide is the first in a new class of drugs, which are essentially GLP-1 receptor agonists with the addition of a GIP um, co-agonism. So the individual molecule is in, able to interact with both the GLP-1 receptor and the GIP receptor. And it appears that there are additional benefits from doing this. And certainly in the studies that have been performed to date, uh, tazepatide seems to perform extremely well in terms of glucose lowering with superiority over established GLP-1 receptor agonists and also superior weight gain seen. Now, I think one of the uh, queries is going to be whether now that the GLP-1 receptor agonists have been licensed at higher doses for glucose lowering, whether those differences would remain significant. And indeed, we'll be seeing the GLP-1 receptor agonists such as uh, semaglutide were, are going through the, the STEP program at the moment, assessing their use at much higher doses for weight reduction. So quite how tazepatide will uh, fare against the higher glucose lowering doses and indeed the anti-obesity doses of the established GLP-1s remains to be seen. I think one particular issue going forwards is around cardiovascular protection. Now, if you regard tazepatide as being a GLP-1 receptor agonist with a bit added on, then maybe it's rational to sort of believe that it will have the same GLP uh, MACE benefits, so reduction in major adverse cardiovascular events that have been demonstrated for the GLP-1 receptor agonist. If, on the other you hand, you regard it as a completely new class, then I think it's incumbent upon the sponsor of that new agent to perform a cardiovascular outcome trial that demonstrates at least safety and given the benefits that have been seen with the GLP-1 receptor agonist, probably superiority. And if that's the case, then you're looking at quite a long time frame between now and getting those data. And it could be that the, the drug is eventually beginning to seriously compete with the established GLP-1 receptor agonists around the time that they are dropping off patent. And then cost, I think, could be a major issue. So although tazepatide looks like a fantastic new addition to the glucose-lowering armory, I think it's going to be quite a complex 
pathway that it is uh, obliged to follow before it becomes widely available and before it's really competing with the drugs that we currently have. And finally, I'd just like to ask about your personal highlights from the conference. Do you have anything in particular that you'd like to mention? Apart from the items that we've considered, uh, I thought the retune data were interesting. So this is an expansion of the direct trial, which has shown that 800 calorie diets with massive weight reduction can indeed reverse type 2 diabetes with the hypothesis that this is due to reduction in fat content in the liver and the pancreas. Uh, Now, One of the questions has been whether this individual fat threshold and the impact of this uh, deposited fat affects not only the obese who are, or the more obese patients who are involved in the direct trial, or whether it was uh, the same sort of thing seen in less obese people. So I think Retune looked at people with a BMI body mass index less than 27 kilograms per meter squared. And it does appear from the study that once again, we are seeing reductions in intrahepatic and intrapancreatic fat, and that these are manifesting as improvements in glycemic control and in a proportion of people normalization of glucose control, so reversal of diabetes. Now, whether going forwards that means I will ever be taking people with a body mass index of 21 or 22 and recommending these very stringent carbohydrate-limited diets, I don't think so. But it does sort of support the hypothesis that there are individual fat thresholds for people for becoming a type 2 diabetic of having type 2 diabetes. And I, I think this is an important message in terms of the guilt that's often given or put upon people who develop diabetes, saying it's all down to your lifestyle and it's it's your fault. If we indeed do all have individual fat thresholds that can lead to this pathology, then somebody with the same weight or twice the weight may not get diabetes and is, you know, taking a diet that is potentially putting them at risk and the the unlucky person with the lower fat threshold is one who develops the condition. So I think it's taking some of the stigma and blame away from people who develop type 2 diabetes in middle and later years. This brings us to the end of the episode. In the episode notes, you can find references for the discussed abstracts, as well as a link to the new and updated Diabetes Knowledge into Practice website, where you can find lots more free resources to support your learning in diabetes. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review or rating to help other people find the podcast.